0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing in our series in Revelation and have been thinking a lot about the state of the church uh, today. It seems that everybody has, has an opinion on how the church ought to look and, and live within a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel uh, the constant cry from certain ministers and certain uh, marketers is that the church needs a new game plan. Well, we've, we've been hearing about this uh, for the last, really, couple of decades. We, we've heard from uh, the church growth experts. We have listened to the, the, um, the church consultants. Uh, but it's high time that we hear from our Lord himself. When it comes to the church's health and when it comes to the church's holiness, there is really only one opinion that counts. And in this last book of the Bible, the Lord Jesus presents to us the last word on the church in really a series of seven letters addressed to seven historic churches, seven real first century churches throughout Asia Minor. Churches that represent conditions uh, existing elsewhere in the body of Christ, uh, conditions of cultural uh, polarity, uh, moral laxity, uh, conditions of doctrinal impurity and spiritual warfare that will persist until Christ returns for His people. In studying these seven letters, we, we really can learn about... The Lord's will for the church, we might call it the master's plan for the church, any church. uh, His will and his plan for for our church here at Faith Community. What Jesus thinks of the church is an issue that, that we cannot afford to ignore. Now, last week we looked at the first of the seven letters, the one from Christ to the church in Ephesus, the church that was, as we said, this was the church that was busy, a lot of activity, a lot of things going on, but they were busy really falling out of love with the Savior, falling out of love with Christ. We might refer to this particular church as the loveless church, and that kind of church has existed really in every age and does still today. Those who have the right message, but they are just cold and indifferent about it. Uh, they they, they, they might, might even say that they have become polemic uh, in that they tend to describe their church or they tend to define themselves more often by what they are against than by what they are for. Well, this letter is there to remind us that being busy and exercising discernment and guarding the truth and serving others certainly aren't bad things, but we have to make sure that our love for Christ and our affection for Christ rises with the increase of our experience of God's mercy, lest we leave our first love for the Lord. Now this morning we will be looking at this second letter, the one to the church in Smyrna, a church that was faithful in the jaws of death. This, you might say this is the, the suffering church, the persecuted church that had been purged and purified. Now if we understand our Bibles, it's it's very clear to us that true believers as well as true churches will face persecution of some kind. Now, the scriptures teach that really that churches and true believers are destined for that. We have been destined not only to believe, the Scripture says, but also to suffer for the name of Christ. But not only that, we also know from the Bible that persecution and suffering have a perfecting work. You may be familiar with these passages. James, James chapter 1, verse 3 says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we understand this dynamic. We we understand the dynamic of how how suffering produces the fruit of endurance and perseverance and and that produces that fruit of great hope. That the church that, that suffers is the church that is purged and purified. Now, why is that? Why is the church that's, that tends to uh, suffer from persecution or other forms of affliction, why is that the case that the church that is in that type of situation is typically more stable, more grounded, and more pure than others? And the simple fact is that hypocrites don't stick around to be persecuted right? Hypocrites don't stand and don't stay around when things get difficult. False believers, false converts don't want the pain. Uh, they, they don't, they don't want to make, they're not willing to make the sacrifice that's, that's, that's involved. So the persecution and the trials and the tribulation and the suffering, all of those things that God uses to strengthen true faith... God also uses to expose false faith and to expose those who are simply playing games, right? That are around for, for, other, for other reasons. Now, let me just read this passage for us. That's just four verses here in Revelation chapter 2. Let me read beginning there in verse 8. It says, And to the angel of, uh, to, to the, angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has has come to life says this, "'I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. "'And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, "'but are a synagogue of Satan. "'Do not fear what you are about to suffer. "'Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison "'so that you will be tested. "'And you will have tribulation for ten days.' Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, as I mentioned last time, the structure of these letters is very similar with some slight differences, and we'll actually see that today and try to point those things out. But this this particular letter opens up much like the letter to the Ephesian church by giving us the location of the church and then telling us something about the author. And so the verse starts out there, verse 8, says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life. So again, in our in a sort of our effort to maybe organize our thoughts as we move through these various letters, let me just break this down for us this morning into seven, seven parts, and we'll just begin with this, the location of the church, which of course is, is uh, the city of Smyrna. Now, what do we know about this particular town or this particular community? Well, the town of Smyrna, which actually still exists, if you will, today. It's actually the modern, it's modern day Izmir there in, in, uh, in uh, Turkey. But this particular city, situated about 35 uh, or so miles up the coast from and almost due north of the city of Ephesus. So it was the next city that the, if you will, that the postman would reach on his circular route of the seven. Churches. So as I, as I mentioned before, the letters of Revelation uh, 2 and 3 are listed in the same order that any traveler would go as he moved through Asia Minor, or as I said, this western end of modern-day Turkey. So we assume that each new city, so first Ephesus and then Smyrna, that the messenger that delivered that letter would stay and that the others would move on. And like Ephesus, uh, this particular city had access to this sort of interior part of, of Asia Minor as, as well as having access to the sea, which, which gave it this, uh, had this excellent natural harbor. So it was a very, and similar to Ephesus, very prosperous community with a flourishing export trade which, which actually made it uh, very sensitive to the rivalry uh, that was going on uh, there with uh, Ephesus. And so the people that lived in Smyrna were always... They were concerned about the people that uh, were living in Ephesus and, and, and the prosperity of Ephesus. And so there was some, if you will, competition between these two towns and a lot of similarities. Uh, this particular uh, city and its people boasted of being, quote, the pride of Asia. So they ha- had this, had this uh, setting that was really breathtaking. It was very... Um, Uh, very incredible. You had this, uh, where you had uh, a city that was very near, that was near the water, but was also near the mountains. And so it began with this harbor, this very deep harbor of about 35 miles. And then you had, you'd sort of traverse through these narrow foothills. And then behind the city rose what they called the pagos, this, this sort of this part of the town there. It's a word that just means simply a hill, but it was a hill in that day that was covered with various temples and all kinds of noble buildings. So a very, very beautiful place, uh, not only because of its architecture, but also its natural topography. Uh, it became a center of science, it became a center of medicine, and, and it, like Ephesus, had been given the privilege of self-governing. In fact, it was, was an exceptionally pro-Roman community. Uh, back in 195 B.C., a temple to Dea Roma, which actually is, is, is the city or even, you might say, the empire of Rome personified as a goddess. But this particular temple was built and dedicated in Smyrna, um, and then through the years this city had acquired quite a reputation for its patriotic loyalty to the Roman empire. Actually, around the time of A.D. 25, many Asian cities were competing with one another for the coveted favor of erecting a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and Smyrna alone was granted that privilege. And evidently, the cult of empire and the cult of of, of the emperor or of Rome and Rome's Caesar was a matter of great pride in Smyrna. Which brings us to really our second idea, and that's the, the history of the church. The history of the church. Now, as far as its founding, we don't know uh, really when this particular church was started. Uh, interestingly, it was uh, it's not mentioned in the book uh, of Acts nor in the New Testament letters. So we know some things about this fellowship from this particular letter in Revelation. Uh, we know it was a pure church. We know that it was a faithful church but we don't know any specifics regarding its beginning. What is easy to imagine, however, is how this church might have been started by those being influenced by the ministry that was taking place in Ephesus less than 40 miles away. Uh, We looked at this last week. That great work of God in Ephesus and the great harvest that extended far beyond that city In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and following, it's really speaking of the Apostle Paul's ministry there. But it says this, and beginning in verse 8 of Acts 19. He, uh, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus... And this took place for two years. And then notice this, "...so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." So there was this tremendous proclamation that was going on. And it seems that as the gospel spread and went out from Asia, or went out from Ephesus, that residents of these other cities that were connected via this this road system connected to Ephesus, were converted and, and began gathering together for worship and for prayer and fellowship and communion. So we have this wonderful congregation of people, but, but for this church in Smyrna, life was very difficult. Life was, in fact, very dangerous for several reasons, but mainly because of this particular city's unusual affinity for Rome and for Caesar. Not that the Christians had a problem uh, submitting to governing authorities or political leaders, but this really became an issue of, of worship because you had to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. So Caesar in this particular time was, was proclaimed really as a god and, and it was to be worshipped as a deity. And if you failed to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, you could lose your life. In fact, historians tell us that in Smyrna there were numerous executions of Christians who refused to bow the knee to Caesar. Interestingly, the name Smyrna uh, is the word uh, translated as Myrrh" in Matthew chapter two, verse eleven, as well as in John chapter 19, verse 39, as in one of the gifts that the wise men brought to the baby Jesus, and, and also one of the items there in John 19 used in preparation for, uh, for Jesus' body and, and for His burial. A myrrh was a substance that was, was taken from a thorny tree that was basically used as uh, a perfume, but in time became associated with, with death itself. And in that regard, it perfectly shows the suffering character of this church, suffering even to the point of death. Uh, being crushed, if you will but in the process, yielding this sweet aroma. And unlike the church in Ephesus, there was no leaving their first love here, right? There was no no waning of of their first love. Uh, This particular church loved Christ. Uh, They were obedient to Christ, which resulted in them suffering and which resulted in them being persecuted, but their suffering only purified their love and made it that much more intense. So this is the church in Smyrna. You could maybe call it the Myrrh Church, right? A a body of Christ-loving saints who were being pressed, who were being pressured, destitute by the world's standards, but giving off a sweet and pleasing aroma from God's perspective. And all of this past history, with this... Town, which you actually can trace the history back uh, almost three thousand years, uh, as again, again it even exists even exists today. It's been really it's it's been burned, it's been destroyed and knocked down, and they keep rebuilding the city on top of the old city and the old ruins. But it's all of this past history, and it's all of this current context, and that's that's what causes Jesus to introduce himself to this church in the way that he does, and of course. He does this at the beginning rather than at the end of the letter, which was the case in all of the all of the ancient letter writings. So, so in other words, it would be if I if I was writing under these kind of uh, guidelines, I, I would say, you know, I Joel write to you uh, Mike, or I Joel write to you Shane. And so that's what's going on here. Christ at the very beginning, rather than sort of waiting until the end of the letter to to sort of sign the letter, if you will. Rather than doing it at the end, he does this at the very beginning and mentions his name and, and some things about him, or you might say his title. So this is the way that this begins, with this identification. This is our third point here, the identification of the author. Now, as I've mentioned, though the Apostle John was the one writing these letters to the messengers from each church, he's not really the author of the correspondence, The author of the correspondence is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ identifies Himself to the church in this way. He says of Himself that He is the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Now again, this this connects back to the vision of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus back in chapter 1. He is the first and the last. You'll see back in chapter 1 verses 17 and 18... That this is what he affirmed to the Apostle John. There in verse 17 it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades, or death, and of Hades." So notice Jesus' self-claims. He says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, which again we, we mentioned back in chapter 1. This was an echo of what the Lord God in the Old Testament had said in, in, uh, about Himself. This is in chapter 1, verse 8. If you go back to that verse, Revelation 1.8, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Which I actually believe, and we didn't spend a lot of time on this when we covered that particular passage, but I actually believe this is the Father's affirmation to confirm the truthfulness of this this prophecy that's given in the previous verse, in verse 7, even though some would argue that the spokesman in verse 8 is actually God the Son. That's why in some of your translations, if you happen to have a, a red-letter Bible, some of you or most of you that would have that edition translation would see that verse 8 is actually in, in red, but I, but I believe it's actually this, uh, the Father affirming this particular prophecy. Either way, it is clear that a close affinity exists between God the Father and God the Son in this book, which results from Christ being all the fullness of the Godhead and sharing in all of the perfections, the deity, and the essence of the Father. In other words, for Jesus to claim that He is the first and the last is to claim that He is God. Because this is a boast of Yahweh in both Isaiah 44 and chapter 48. So Jesus is saying simply, I am him. I am the eternal one, the self-existent one. And when all of the false gods and with all, when all of the emperors, including at that particular time when this was, was penned by John, the emperor Domitian, even, even when, when he himself, when all of these have come and gone, I alone will remain because I am the first and the last. Now, also, when he addressed the church in Smyrna, he claimed that he was the one who is dead, or was dead, literally became dead, and has come to life. So, simply put, we, we, we live and we die, and the text says here that Christ, he, he died and he lived. And this is a paradox, really, of all paradoxes. How, how can the eternal and living God who is beyond all time and beyond all space and outside of history, die. How can that be? How can Christ be both the first and the last and the one who has died or has become dead? But He did. The Lord Jesus Christ was God incarnate entering into time, space, and history for the very purpose of dying on the cross for our sins. That is the heart of the gospel that he died as a man for sin and now lives by resurrection as the glorified God-man. But he himself had, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16, the power of an indestructible life. So that is the message to the church in Smyrna. Christ says, I am the one writing to you, And I am the eternal one and the one who died but conquered sin and death and the grave. Now, why that particular designation? As we'll see in a moment, it was because of their persecution. And Christ is reminding them that no matter what they are going through, that he suffered the most powerful persecution that anyone has ever suffered as he made his way to the cross and bore the sins of the world. Because that is the supreme suffering. And the Lord of the church, he is telling them that he is the transcendently living one who died, yet lives and gives to them resurrection life should they lose their lives even under persecution. He understands. He will be there with them no matter what because He's in charge. They need not fear death. They need not fear the emperor because Jesus was king, death was gain, and as we mentioned before, they were on the winning side. So we have this great city. We have the city This city of Smyrna. We have this uh, just beautiful Uh, uh, area of Asia Minor and yet nestled in this great city and community is this little church, a church that is under fire a church that was being persecuted but a church whose head and lord and leader was intimately aware of their suffering and wanted them to know that all of this was happening according to God's plan so next we have this, the commendation from Christ, the commendation from Christ. Verse 9, notice what he says. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So once again, as the sovereign and omniscient king, as the sovereign and omniscient shepherd, the Lord Jesus knows exactly what's going on, He knows the state of His people. Uh, Nothing escapes His vision. This is Christ ministering, you remember, among the lampstands. And and Christ as that one who ministers among the lampstands, knows every single detail about this church, and He does really about every church in every place at every time which is the application for us. The application for us when, as we go through these letters is to always remember that Christ is still moving among His churches, right? He's still examining, He's still assessing, He still knows. And He doesn't just simply know the circumstances and the things coming upon the church and coming into the lives of His people, but He knows the hearts of His people as well. Now, what is it specifically that Christ knows? And I would say not only what Christ knows, but what Christ wants them to know that he knows, right? Because he's telling them this. He could just say, I know what's going on, right? I know everything. I'm, I'm, I'm omniscient, right? And, and they would, that wouldn't be a false statement, right? That would bring a certain measure of comfort. But Christ mentions some things very specifically because he wants them to know that he knows these things, and so he mentions several things. First, Christ knew that they were a persecuted church. Christ knew that they were a persecuted church. He says, I know your tribulation. thipsis uh, is, is, is the word. It refers to basically being under pressure. Uh, it, it's a word that, that speaks of something being contracted or squeezed. It's, it's like the pressing of, of, uh, of grapes. So these these Christians were being pressed by all sorts of persons, good and bad, the respectable, the profane, the open persecutors, and the false brethren. Not unlike those believers being addressed in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 and following, who it says there endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated and who showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Now, why, why were these believers being persecuted? And we've already mentioned some of the reasons for this. First, because they refused to sprinkle incense before the bust of the emperor in the Dea Roma. So in, this, in this, this temple, once a year, the people had to come, the citizens had to come, and they had to basically offer up an, an, an offering, this incense offering to, to Caesar himself, to the emperor himself. Again, the Christians in the first century didn't have a problem with authority. Right? They didn't have a problem. In fact, you know, Romans 13, some of these passages in the Scriptures, even First Peter, speak to this issue of how the church relates to, to civil authority. They didn't have a problem with that. They didn't have a problem with submitting to Rome so long as submitting to Rome didn't require that they violate God's Word or that they violate their conscience. So long as they didn't have to, you might say, as long as they didn't have to worship Rome. Right? They didn't have a, long, a, a problem with submitting to governing authorities. So that was one, if you you will, sort of one avenue of persecution that came to them. It was coming from the fact that they were not willing to bow the knee to Caesar. And then secondly, they they were, as the church in Ephesus, engulfed in pagan worship of various kinds as thousands of people around them were following after all sorts of gods and goddesses, worshiping in their respective temples and participating in their respective festivals. So in a more, you might say in a more general way, the church in Smyrna was simply going against the flow of the culture, right? So they had this emperor worship to deal with, but then in addition to that, they they were just simply going upstream, right? Culturally speaking, because they were not willing to, to participate in these other forms of pagan idolatry that uh, quite literally that all of their all of their neighbors were participating in and so they really stood out like a sore thumb in in that situation and then there were the Jews in Smyrna who would fan the flame of this popular antagonism to the Christians for their refusal to take part in the emperor worship now now how did that happen well the Jews themselves were exempt from the sacrificial obligations. But yet the Jews were willing to exploit their privilege by harassing the hated Christians. And so perhaps what the Jews would do is they would urge the Christians to sacrifice, but then they would vilify the Christians when the Christians would decide that they would not do that. Now again, this Jewish opposition is nothing new. You see it all through the book of Acts. Jews who rejected the Messiah, Jews who hated the church. In fact, the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest. In Rome, still disputing with Jewish leaders and him accusing those Jewish leaders of being culpably blind and deaf. So these were were some of the pressures that were coming upon the church in Smyrna. And Christ says, listen, I know about all of them. I know where these persecutions are coming from. So he knew about their persecutions, he knew about their problems, he knew about their pain. But Christ also knew, secondly, that they were an impoverished church. He knew that they were an impoverished church. He says this, I know your poverty. So apparently their faithfulness to the gospel had already brought economic hardship. Uh, This particular word for poverty is is a term that really, it, it was used to designate absolute poverty or to be completely destitute. Not that they had enough to meet their basic needs with nothing extra left over. They didn't even have that much. Some of them may have been slaves, maybe abused slaves who, who, did, who did their work diligently but received little if anything beyond food. Perhaps the Christians in Smyrna belonged to the lower ranks of, of society, but more likely they, they missed out on some of the prophets which meant Uh, which went to others who weren't as honest and upright as they were. Or again, Jews and pagans may have been unwilling to trade with them, or it may have been difficult for them to find employment. In fact, it's even possible that some of these Christians had their homes pillaged and had their possessions plundered. Either way, they were poor. But then notice the parenthetical statement. But you are what? He says, I know. I know that you're poor. I know that you're impoverished, but... You are rich. You are rich. So this was, this was the poor, rich church. Poor materially, but spiritually affluent. You say, spiritually speaking, they were loaded. All right? Uh, Paul, speaking about his own ministry, said this in Second Corinthians 6.4. He says in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults in labors and sleeplessness and hunger, in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love, in the word of truth and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. As unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And then notice what he says, as poor, yet making many rich. He said, That's that's our that's our ministry. I mean he's basically describing his ministry. He said, Listen, we, we are poor yet. Because we're preaching the gospel, right? We're giving people the truth of God's word. We are making many rich. And then he says, "...as having nothing, yet possessing all things." Later on in that letter, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says this, "...for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." Now again, the statement about Christ becoming poor has more to do with his really His incarnation, His condescension as He took the form of a a bondservant and was crucified like a common criminal. Nevertheless, when it comes to our becoming rich, it is saying what Christ is telling the people in Smyrna, to the church in Smyrna, that you are rich... Not materially, but rich in salvation, rich in forgiveness, rich in joy, rich in love, rich in peace. James chapter 2 verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? That's a very different message than the one of the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent today, right? The prosperity gospel says that those who are materially poor must be spiritually poor. But Christ says that it's very possible for the materially poor to be spiritually rich. And it's also possible for the materially well-to-do to to be what? Spiritually poor. It's very possible that the materially well-to-do can in some cases be spiritually impoverished. In fact, the last church that Christ will write to in chapter 3 is the rich-poor church. Smyrna is the poor-rich church. Poor materially, rich spiritually. The church at Laodicea was the opposite. They had the opposite issue. right? They were materially rich, but from Christ's perspective, they were spiritually poor. In fact, these are the ones who thought they were rich, and yet Jesus says to them, I'm telling you that you are penniless when it comes to spiritual qualities. But not the church in Smyrna. They were affluent from Christ's standpoint. They had power, they had holiness they had love they had joy they had true fellowship they had true relationships true friendships they had true faith they had peace with god they had already they had a sympathetic savior who had no, who has no beginning and who has no ending and who died for their sins and who gives eternal life to those who believe on him right i mean these people had some serious divine resources they had grace upon grace upon grace they were rich. And that's how it is with a persecuted church. Because persecution forces the roots of the church to go deeper. For the people to be more committed. For the people to trust God more than those who are caught up in the world and who are, are uh, focused on personal pleasure and personal comfort. So Christ knew that they were a persecuted church. He knew that they were an impoverished church, although not at all spiritually poor. And then thirdly, Christ knew that they were a slandered church. He knew that they were a slandered church. He says, I also know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now this will come up again in chapter 3, verse 9. But what a statement. Christ says that there are Jews in Smyrna who are members of a synagogue, but it's not the synagogue of God, it's the synagogue of Satan. That is to say, with the rejection of their Messiah, Judaism becomes as satanic as emperor worship. In fact, you might even say even more so, because of the amount of revelation that the Jews have received and the amount of opportunity that they've had. So because of light and because of privilege, maybe even even more so. Now what were these Jews doing in Smyrna that was so wicked? Well, they were committing, the text says they were committing blasphemy, which is another word for slander. So obviously... They were guilty of hating Christ and blaspheming the name of Christ. But in this particular context, it's more likely referring to the fact that they were slandering Christians and slandering the church. Slandering them for various... Kinds of things we we have these this, we have historical records that that indicate some of these things that they were accused of cannibalism saying that they eat flesh and drink bloods so they were taking statements about communion and the Lord's supper and they were they were they were sort of uh, uh, pressing those things out and making those kinds of accusations accusing them of lust and immorality because they would have uh, these what they called love feasts in the church. Uh, or because they spoke of loving their brothers and sisters, and so they would turn this into some sort of incestual type claim against the church, uh, because they were greeting with, with one another with a holy kiss. I mean, they would just pervert and twist all of these things to try to destroy the church, slandering them for breaking up families because their message called for the highest allegiance to Jesus Christ, slandering them for atheism because they rejected the worship of emperors and the deities of Rome, slandering them for rebellion, slandering them for political disloyalty and all kinds of things. That's what was going on. A large population of Jews poisoning the minds of the people against the Christians. And no doubt, these Jews had a synagogue, a literal synagogue in Smyrna. But it was no synagogue of of God, it was a synagogue, he says, of Satan, because they were not true Jews. And what does that mean? Well, I think what that means is that they they were Jews physically, but they were not Jews spiritually. You remember what Jesus boldly said to the Jewish leaders in John 8... When they made the assertion that God was their father, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you, he says, convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. God, Ouch. But it's the truth. It's the truth. They had joined with the Romans in having put Jesus to death. Then they joined with the heathen in putting Christians to death as they united to stamp out Christianity. And the reality is that all of the challenges that the church in Smyrna faced, this was probably the most difficult. But Christ says, I know about you. I know about your circumstances, I know about the persecution, I know about the poverty, I know about the lies, and I don't just know from some kind of distant observation. I know because of personal experience, and because of first-hand involvement. I know because I've been there. I've been there. And then he gives them these crucial words of exhortation. So this is our fifth point, the exhortation from Christ, verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So really there's three imperatives. We had three imperatives last Sunday, three today. It's basically, he says, Do not be afraid uh, behold, it's just, a, I think a, a loose translation would be to say, be, Beware or be aware of what is coming. So don't be afraid, be aware of what is coming and be faithful. Now you think he, he might want to say to them, I know, I know what you've been through, but, but things are going to get better. But he doesn't do that. What he tells them is, I know what you've been through. Now brace yourselves, because more is coming. And some of you are going to be put into prison. The devil is going to do it, but it won't last too long. You'll have tribulation, he says here, for 10 days. But as one writer points out, Roman authorities used incarceration not for long-term containment, but for short-term custody of those either awaiting trial or sentencing for death. Which means that the release that will follow the ten days, may not be a return to, the fr- to freedom on the streets of Smyrna, but something better, and that is martyrdom. Now, for what purpose? For what purpose do these things happen? Well, Christ mentions it there in the middle of the verse. He says, so that you will be tested. So that you will be tested. This, this word, it's, it's a word that can mean to tempt... But the basic meaning is the idea of testing or proving something that, and it doesn't necessarily have this negative connotation when we think about temptation. By the way, this is the same term that's used back in chapter, in, the same, in this same chapter, back up in verse 2, where Christ was commending the believers in Ephesus for testing those who were claiming to be apostles but were actually false. So when we find ourselves in various trials and situations, whether these tests or trials become a proof of righteousness or an inducement to evil depends on our response. If we resist, if we resist this in God's power, then it, then it, then it is a, a test that proves our faithfulness. If we do not resist, then it becomes a solicitation to, to sin. And the Bible uses the term really in in both of these ways. So when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, it is clear that both God and Satan participated in the testing. God intended for the test to prove His own Son's righteousness, but Satan intended it to induce Jesus to misuse His divine power and to give His allegiance to Satan. When you think about Job in the Old Testament, Job was tested in much the same way. God allowed Job to be afflicted in order to prove his servant was, as he says in the text, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan's purpose was the opposite, right? Satan's purpose was to prove that Job was faithful only because of the blessings and the prosperity that the Lord had given him and that if those things were taken away that Job would surely curse God to his face. So God's tests are never a solicitation to evil. And James, in James chapter 1, verse 13, strongly corrects those who would even suggest such a thing. He says there, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. And the phrase there, by evil, is, is really the key, the key to the difference between these two types of, of situations, So in the wilderness, God tested Jesus by righteousness, whereas Satan tested Him by evil. And then according to verse 14 and 15 of James chapter 1, a temptation becomes an inducement to sin or evil only when a person is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own desire. And then when desire and lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So get this, no no believer can claim that he was overwhelmed by, by temptation or that the devil made me do it. No one, not even Satan, can make us sin. Right? No temptation is inherently stronger than our spiritual resources. So people, all people, sin because they willingly sin. They willingly do it. The Christian, however, has his heavenly Father's help in resisting temptation because God is faithful and God remains true to His own. And so when our faithfulness is tested, we have God's own faithfulness as our resource. We can be absolutely certain that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able So that is God's response. When we pray that prayer, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or or you might say, or from the evil one. God will not let us experience any test that we are not able to meet. Interestingly, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked them twice whom they had come for. So he was asking them, who, who was designated on their arrest order? And after they answered for the second time, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus said, so if you seek me, let these go their way. So Jesus was trying to press them to say, now whose name is on the arrest order? So that they, they would not take the disciples, right? They would be sort of hemmed in and forced to only take him into custody. And John explains this, right? John explains that Jesus prevented the disciples from being arrested with Him in order that the word might be fulfilled which He spoke, "...of those whom you've given Me, I lost not one of them." That is to say, the disciples were not yet ready for such a test. Had they been arrested, they would have been devastated, and Jesus would not permit it. As best as we know from church history... Most of those 11 disciples died a martyr's death. The other, John, was, as we know, exiled on the island of Patmos. But all of them went through persecution, imprisonment, and countless hardships for the sake of the gospel. But they did not go through those things until they were ready to handle them. So how does all this apply to the church at Smyrna? Well, Jesus tells them the test is coming. It's coming. The pressure has already been tremendous, but it's about to get worse. And you can be sure that the devil's objective is to destroy saving faith, to attack believers and to try to destroy the salvation that they possess. That is his goal. That is Satan's ambition to destroy the regenerate, to destroy God's people. This is battle. Satan is basically saying, let me at that person. I'm going to get that person. I'm going to get that church. For example, in Job, Satan had been roaming about the earth and walking around on it looking for someone to devour. And one day he shows up at God's throne and says, have you God says, have you considered my servant Job? Why did God say that? <laughs> I mean, why is God giving Satan a suggestion? Because God is in charge. So God says, have you tried Job? There's no one like him on the earth. There's no one so virtuous, no one so faithful, no one so God-fearing. And Satan says to God, yeah, I hear you. But the reason that he's like that is because he's got everything. He's rich. He's got a big family. He's got got it made. But if all those things were taken away, his virtue and his integrity and his trust would all go down down the drain. So what does the Lord do? God says to Satan... Have Adam. Go for it. Go after him. But you can't take his life, but you can do anything else. And what happens? Well, you know the story instant poverty. He loses everything all of his children, his servants, his flocks. The only one left is his wife, which didn't prove to be of any help throughout the whole book, not to mention Job's friends who gave him terrible counsel. But through it all, his faith never collapses. It never collapses. Even when Satan was given permission a second time and allowed to smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, though he slay me, Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. It never wavers, and God is saying to Satan, See, no matter what you do, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how severe it is, you cannot destroy true faith. You can't do it. And sometimes God just wants to send that signal to the domain of Satan. And I think that's what's going on when Christ says to the church in Smyrna, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. I think Christ is making this point because these, say, these believers at, at, at Smyrna, certainly up to this point, had proven themselves to be committed for suffering, for doing what is right, proven themselves to love Jesus. But this is bigger than that. This is about God magnifying His power and showing off His ability to save and to keep and to hold His people. Think about that example out of Luke chapter 22 when Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat." He says to basically to Peter, Satan's after you. He came to me and he asked if he could have you. And you can imagine Peter thinking to himself, well, you told him no, right? <laughs> like, I mean, isn't that what you're thinking like. You did say no, and what does Jesus say? No, I told him yes. But why? What did Jesus do that for? Again, I think this was just another message to Satan to prove that saving faith is indestructible. And Satan would go after Peter, but Jesus assured Peter and said this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it didn't. We see the same thing in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. A messenger from Satan went after Paul and couldn't destroy his faith either. In fact, through it all, Paul became stronger than ever. Became stronger than ever. I really believe that that's what's going on. It is sort of You might say on a supernatural level, God is saying, I'm going to show Satan my glory, and I'm going to display the power of my salvation, and I'm just telling you, church, that the devil is going to come, and he's going to cast some of you into prison, and it's a test. Not to reveal anything to you necessarily, and certainly not to reveal anything to me. I mean, Christ didn't need to know, right? He already knew them inside and out. But to make the point to Satan and his kingdom that saving faith cannot be destroyed. So he tells the church, this is coming, it's a test, but I've prayed for you that your faith not fail. And then he actually exhorts them to what? To be faithful. To be faithful until death. Be faithful to the extent of being ready to die for my sake. Prove yourself faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. The victor's wreath, which is life. He is simply saying, if your faith is real, then it will last. And if it lasts, in the end, I'll give you life. The crown, or the culmination, which is life. If you die in faithfulness, I will give you life. And if you're a true believer, you will die in faithfulness. Right? Because your faith will not collapse. So what do you have to fear? Christ says, because I live, you'll live. So don't be afraid. You know what's coming. Keep striving to be faithful. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And do not be ashamed because you know whom you have believed and be convinced that He is able to guard what you have entrusted to Him until that day. Folks, this this is this is a tremendous church. A tremendous church. A church where martyrdom to them was a lifestyle and not an event that happens at the end of your life. They understood that Christianity costs you something. And you'll notice there's nothing negative said about or to this fellowship. Christ has no criticism No rebuke, unlike the other letters, with the exception of the letter to the church in Philadelphia. It contains no note of censure. Why is that? Because the church under fire will more often than not be a pure church. Because it is purged by the persecution. And people who are just showing up for whatever reason, once the persecution and the pressure start, they get out. They get out. Because they don't don't have anything to die for. They don't want to stay around and get killed in the massacre. Then quickly, the command to heed, and again, these are just... We looked at these this, this last week, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Again, Christ is the author of the letter. John penned it. The messenger delivered it to the church. But the Holy Spirit is the one who is pressing it to the heart. He is the one who is calling us to listen and to obey and to follow. And then finally, the promise to the overcomer, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, you'll remember from last week, every time you see that phrase, he who overcomes or, or, or or the overcomer is mentioned, it just means Christian. Because based on 1 John 5, our faith overcomes. So true believers, he says, those of you who are real believers will never be hurt by the second death which is the one, honestly, that people really should be afraid of, right? This is the one they should worry the most about. Not so much the physical one, but the spiritual and eternal death being forever consigned to the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20 and 21. This is Christ's promise to us. Immunity from the second death. Immunity against the second death. So this is the church under, under persecution, the persecuted, poor, little, rich church. Squeezed, gashed, slandered, but fragrant and victorious with true faith. And in every period of the church's history, there have been those local churches, those local fellowships, and, and there are such churches today that are in this kind of situation. We may not see that often in our particular context and in our nation, but some of our missionaries would testify that this is the case in their part of the world in various ways and in various forms, still, according to the Scriptures, suffering is an indispensable mark of every true Christian and every true church. Because our message and our standard morally, those things provoke the world's opposition. The message of the letter to this church is as searching for us as it was for them. If we are true, if we are true, we will suffer. We shall suffer. But let us be faithful and not fear, for Jesus Christ, who is the first and the last, who died and lives again, knows our trials, controls the outcome, controls our destiny, and will invest us at the end of the race with the crown of life. Well, let's stand. And before we close in prayer, it's just very simple. This is a very very simple challenge. Really, it's the most important question. Are you an overcomer? Are you an overcomer? Is your faith real? Are you waiting for the crown, which is eternal life, and will you escape the second death? If not, as always, we plead with you to repent and to turn from your sin and to place your faith, your reliance, and all, all that you are, uh, with all of your heart that you would trust in the Lord Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you again this morning, Lord, for your word. We're so grateful for our Savior who is the everlasting one, the eternal Son of God, the one who died for our sins, and the one who now lives forevermore. Lord, as the church, we pray, Lord, that we would be ready for the test. Uh, We've already been through some tests, and Lord, we are even in, in some ways, even in the midst of trials as we speak, and yet, Lord, there are other things to come. And we pray that, Lord, as we face those things, may we be found with a love that is ever growing. And Lord, may we be found with a faith that perseveres and endures, that Lord, you would help us to be like this church, a faithful church in the midst of suffering. In your precious name we pray, amen.